0: And that you would pour it out to us this day, in this place, in this time, in this year that we are here gathered in your name. And we thank you that we can ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Right. We're going to need to open your Bibles, Exodus 13. Hopefully you found that. Page 70. Now, it is a very long passage. So we've kind of done a little bit of praising. So I'll try to make sure that you know where I am as we go along. Um, We're going to start reading from verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Herahoth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. And Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion hemmed in by the desert. We're then going to pick up at verse 5 of chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt. So he then pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly, and he overtook them as they camped by the sea. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. So in the end, neither army went near the other all night long. So from verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and it turned into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. So what happened was the Egyptians pursued them into the sea. The Lord threw the Egyptian army into confusion and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. From verse 26, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So it tells us that that's what happened. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The water flowed back and covered the entire army of Pharaoh, and not one of them survived. In verse 31, we read, When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then we go on to have Moses and Miriam's song in chapter 15, which we won't read now. Finishing at verse 21, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea.
0: Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you for doing that. Save my voice and saying you listened to me too long. So, so there we are. We've got the, the story there of, of this amazing crossing of the Red Sea. But already at the end, we didn't go through the whole of the song of Moses and Miriam, but already at that point, we find ourselves in the cracked old verse. Because I was looking at this this week, and I thought this whole song is a song of triumphalism. It's not a song of celebration of their freedom. It's a song of destruction of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And I'm thinking, what's this Jesus stuff, love your enemies, and here we've got, you know... Two pages of they've destroyed, they've been killed, they've been destroyed. And so immediately you have to take a step back and say, well, what's going on? What are they celebrating? And, of course, actually the truth is, what they're celebrating is they're celebrating the destruction of evil. Pharaoh is this caricature of Satan. We've got the whole story. This is the amassed forces of evil that we are being... We're seeing Egypt in that way. We're seeing Egypt as this force of evil and Satan driving them forward. And, of course, this is the destruction story they celebrate. Is a destruction story we celebrate as well through Jesus. And so actually you start to sort of see, okay, this is what this word is, is taking to us and telling us to. And of course they say at the end of that, they, they say oh, the Lord reigns forever and ever. They put their trust in the Lord. They're never going to forget. This is an amazing high point. But of course actually the story is one of, of quite a lot of forgetfulness. Uh, in a sense, I was really struck the other week. I was I was on a course and somebody... Highlighted in, uh, it's John, he don't need to turn to it, but uh, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. Uh, John, where is it? It's uh, 8, verse 12, and he, uh, verse 31. So he says, If you hold on to my teaching, this is to the Pharisees, Jesus says, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Pharisees answered, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? The descendants of Abraham spent 430 years in slavery in Egypt. And yet the Pharisees have got not that on your radar at all. So, this is a story of, of, of actually how do we remember it? And I want to just draw a picture of just thinking about the ups and downs of this journey for the Israelites. So, I hope you're going to be able to see it. So, we start in the desert, we, sorry, we start in Egypt in slavery. And that's a low point for the, Egypt, for the, for the Israelites. But of course, we then start to see. These miracles, these plagues coming, and there's these high points, but they don't seem to lead to freedom. They don't seem to lead. And then, of course, we have the Passover, and then we have this story we've got today. We've got this story of the crossing in the Red Sea. It's absolute crescendo. We are released. We see the destruction of our enemy, and we are passed through the waters, and it's amazing. And we often see that as a high point of the story. But just with that forgetfulness of the Pharisees, that high point lasts For two verses, three days. And we'll cover that in a later week. But it then goes on. Within three days, the people were grumbling against Moses. They were moaning. This was a high point that didn't last. They're back down again. And, of course, the story carries on in the wilderness. And we start to see the Lord provide for them. And we start to see. And it's up and down. But the truth is, the real low point of this story is yet to come in the golden calf incident and if you know exodus you'll know what happens as you go in it actually the irony is that here they are slaves oppressed by the egyptians here they are slaves to themselves they've come out and it takes four generations to clean that away from these israelites because actually the lord has them on a journey and he's got them on a the journey i don't want to spoil the story if you don't know exodus but the high point is at the end the high point is the glory of the Lord dwelling in the tabernacle. And this is the story we're on. We're just here. And it's a tough old route for them. But ultimately, the Lord has his sight set on something amazing, something beautiful for these people. And he is calling them to that. He is calling them out of this place, through all this, to get somewhere amazing. So that's the story we're right in the middle of at the moment. Oops. So we go back to the beginning now, we're just gonna go back into into thirteen verse verse seventeen. So when Pharaoh let the people go, he did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people round the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of Egypt, ready for battle. So the Lord's already spotted this, he knows what's happening. He knows that if he sets the Israelites off into the country with the Philistines, there's going to be a war, and that's going to be tough, and they're going to go, oh, I don't know. It wasn't that bad back here in Egypt, was it? Actually, it was all right. I don't really want to fight this war, so they're just going to back off. He's never going to get them here if we just head off through this war. He says, actually, this isn't going to work. So actually, I'm going to lead you off down this way. I'm going to put you in a dead end. So it doesn't feel so great for, for, for the Israelites and Moses. You know, actually, they think, well, this is the way out, but we're not going that way because the Lord knows they're never going to make it. Because actually our human nature, no matter how bad this place is in slavery, no matter how bad this place is, our human nature, we know what this is like. So we go back there because actually the unknown's a bit of a challenge. Actually, it's going to be tough. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs, but actually I know what it's like here. And, of course, in the text, we, we hear the people just say that outright to Moses. We'd rather be here than there. And that goes on. <coughs> and so we're carrying on. So 14, verse 1. So they, they're in a cul-de-sac. They've been forced into this corner. 14, 1. Then the Lord says to Moses, turn back, camp near the sea. And then going on to fourteen ten. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to die, to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's where these people are. They're now right back. They've just seen amazing liberation of the Lord. They've just been set free from Pharaoh, and their hearts are already back in slavery in Egypt. And of course, their point is that the whole amassed forces of evil are after them. The whole amassed forces of Pharaoh, all his chariots, all his best horsemen are on their trail. And that's the story, isn't it? This, this passage says the, the Israelites marched out boldly. As soon as we march out boldly, who comes after us? Satan. He doesn't want us to go. And this story is saying he doesn't want... The Egyptians do not want these Israelites to set off. They do not want them on this journey. Satan knows. Pharaoh knows what's at the end of this. And he's not having it. So he's pursuing them. And the people are like, what But Oh, actually, I go back. And of course, that is our story again. It's our story that Satan is after us as soon as we step forward. You, if you your baptisms or Alpha courses, you'll probably know it. When you stu- stride out for the Lord, you'll probably know it. That absolutely pursuit of evil after you, A desperation to get you. So we're carrying on in. 14 verse 13. So, so the the people are like, "Well, we'd better to die." And then Moses stands up, and Moses answers the people: "Do not be afraid." Now, that's a pretty brave thing to say. There's nothing but water. You've got about two million people, and all the animals, and everything else. They're carrying about seven tons of precious metals. They've got everything. They've got unbaked bread, and there's an army coming after them. The biggest army that they can imagine. And Moses goes, do not be afraid. Whoa, this is it. You know, this is Moses' point. He says, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. Now there is no evidence in the text that Moses has any idea what's going to happen. You know, it could have been he did a little pact with Moses, but you know, the Lord says, "Well, look, what we're going to do is we're going to get you here, and then we're going to go like that, and then you're going to nip through." And actually, there's nothing in the text that suggests that. What the text suggests is that Moses knew that if God had brought him here, if God had placed him with these people in this place at this time, that they had nothing to be afraid of. And that is huge faith. And if you read these texts, you'll probably look at it and think, oh, Moses' faith is unbelievable. I wish I had that faith of Moses. And we're really blessed by Exodus because Exodus, undoubtedly written by Moses, is a wonderful story that tells us the whole thing. This is not Moses' Facebook feed. This isn't his Instagram post of the high points. Oh, this is me parting the Red Sea. And um, This is me getting water out of the rock. And this is... No, actually, this is me by a burning bush going... No God, this is the wrong person. You don't want me. I'm slow of speech. This is Moses' who's like, I-, I can't do this. And the Lord says, You can. I've called you to do this. We see his front stage and his backstage. We see his do not be afraid in the face of more than we can imagine. And we see his I can't do this. We see the whole story of it. And there's a great irony in Moses. There's, later on in this story we will see Moses receive the Ten Commandments. Now we know Moses' background. We see him in this great faith but we know the whole story because he's told us. What did Moses feel like when God got to Commandment 6? Who knows what Commandment 6 is? Thou shalt not murder. I think Moses is going, oh, do you think he knows? Oh, um, uh, what seven oh, adultery, are terrible adultery, isn't it? You know, it's like, actually, there's something in this passage that says, what's our understanding of God's forgiveness? We don't know. There's just this story that goes on here, Moses, here's the Ten Commandments, and Moses is like, I'm the murderer. So we see this whole story of Moses, but his unshakable faith comes from his honesty with God. It comes from his openness, his brokenness, his realness. We shouldn't read this story and go, wow, Moses. We should go, whoa, Moses, I'm with you. But if we're with him in the deep and the dark and we're with him in that be still moment, we should be with him in that move on moment as well. And of course Moses, you know, has all these problems. He goes, oh, yeah, I can't speak. The Lord doesn't just fix that. He provides people. As we go on in the story, we see Aaron, we get on the fight, see Amakalites. Actually, people hold his hands up. This is all great Moses. He can't do it on his own. The Lord knows that. He's giving him the people. He's putting them around him. But we see this unshakable faith come forward. So then moving on to 14 verse 15. We've Moses that says, be still. And then the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide the water. So the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And then he talks about hardening the hearts of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh will follow. His army will follow. They'll follow him into the sea. And then we talked about the angel of God comes down. It throws it into confusion. It just creates the space. For this is quite a remarkable thing. There's two million people trying to escape an army well-equipped on horses and chariots. So actually the Lord is fighting undoubtedly. And the Egyptians see that. They see that... They know that the Lord was going through through Pharaoh. I can't find the words, but it's somewhere it says they're fighting for them. And then Moses stretched out his hands over the sea, and all that night long he drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left, or on their left and their right, depending on which way you're looking at it. So so th- we, he breaks this open, he does this. Now, we said we were going to move things around today. This is the point we're going to do that. These chairs down the middle, the metal-legged chairs, the east wind at the back, otherwise known as Roger, is going to sweep these chairs away. So if you were on one of those chairs, we'd appreciate you moving to a wooden chair. And if you're not, Roger has got permission to wheel you off with the trolley. So. Now, we're going to do this symbolically to imagine this parting of the sea. But actually what's driving it is we're actually going to use it um, in, in a little bit more later on. And I'm going to warn you of this now so you've got time to think about it and also so you don't blame Tim for this. We're going to do communion differently today. We are going to take the bread, the bread that Jesus talks about as the bread of life, He he compares himself to the manna in the wilderness. We're going to take it to the back. We're going to take it through the sea. We're going to take it as the Israelites would have done on that day. As they traveled through that sea, they took their bread with them. But ultimately, we're taking Jesus with us to that place at the back. And we're going to feed on it there. So what we're going to do at the time comes, we're going to ask Everybody, And you can all do it in one go, if you like. You can make it a mass, but it doesn't matter. Or you can do it very orderly, depending on you know, how British you are. But we're going to encourage people, if you are able to come out down the side aisles, come to the front, and go down through the Red Sea to receive bread at the back. And then once you've received the bread at the back, then return to your seats and we will do wine in the normal way. So that's a bit of a pre-warner for you if you're one of the five people on the balcony, we would love you to come down the stairs and join that, if you are able. And I say, if you're not able to move, uh, you don't want to do that, then just ask somebody next to you if they would bring you some bread. As we, as nobody's to miss out. But that's, it's just a symbolic thing, but actually it's about... Because this story is about moving. And in a sense, it calls us to move too. And, and, and it's just a sense that we could do that in that. Um... So yeah, moving the chairs, I was going to mention that, actually, my experience of church is that there's 10 commandments in the Old Testament, and there's 11 in the contemporary church. One is, thou shalt not rearrange the chairs. But I figured that Moses gets away with murder, so chairs, I wing it like that. so. So thank you very much for allowing the chairs to go. So, the waters are parted. God is calling the people. He is saying to them, move on. We're right here. But he's got to move on from them. He knows where he wants them to go. He's got that inside. And, and of course, it's difficult. The people are still sort of back here going, well, what I'm, it wasn't that bad, really. But, actually, the truth is, who fed them back here? Egyptians, Satan, evil. Who's going to feed them in there? God. Jesus is the bread of life. He's actually calling them to rely on, on him. He's calling on to a journey that is going to be tough. But it's going to be tough for a reason. It's going to be tough because he's got a story to tell. He's got a place that they're going to go and they've got to lose some stuff on the way. So the waters is symbolically in terms of, of that, of, of actually you know, washing the people And you can't stop. You know, actually, if you stay here, you'll stay in slavery. And, of course, that's a choice we can make. Often, maybe we nip back here. But you can't stop in here. Because if you stop in here, we know the story ends with the destruction of Pharaoh and everybody that follows him. So, actually, once we set off on this journey, we are destined to carry on. The truth is, we can spend a lot of time in the wilderness at the other end as the Israelites did, of 40 years doing circuits and things. But sometimes that's necessary. But God calls them on. And at the end of Exodus, we see the beauty of what God is really calling us to. So what does move on look like for us? This story is about us. This story is for us. So what does move on look like? Now, of course, this is a geographical move on. It's a real step from... Egypt into this wilderness it's geographical it's a mass movement of people and of course our journey of faith as a family that was the sort of easy bit we within two years of my coming to faith as a family we were out of a job out of a place we were moving we were moved we moved from uh, Buckinghamshire down to Hampshire we let go of a job and that was a fight that was a real battle with Satan following and it took three months post me leaving the job for for the Lord to Give what he promised. But but we did that. We did that journey and, and we moved. And of course, it's sort of, you, can, you, you can see it. It's not easy, but you know you've done it. Well, actually, I'm going from here to here. When I've done from here to here, I'm moving with the Lord. So it's sort of easy in that way to see. And actually, for our journey, just a bit of a side, actually, it was very much. We were trying to buy a house. We knew the village we were to move to. It was the most amazing experience. We went as a family. We looked at a house and we prayed that the Lord, if this was the place you'd show us, with a shaft of light, I think we prayed in the car, and we stood in the garden in the blackest, greyest day in whatever, probably April or something, and literally the skies opened and the light came down, and we just knew as a family this was the place. That went on. There weren't many houses in the village. Alice used to wind the estate agents up because they'd ring her up and go, oh, we've got this house in Curdridge," and she'd go, oh, that's not in Swanmore, sorry, Ching. oh, we've got this, no, that's not in. And they go, well, there weren't that many houses. But there was a house, and we were trying to buy it, and it was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. Big house, negotiations going on, been going on for, oh, I can't even remember, but a while. And then one Sunday morning, the Lord said, I want to go to a different church. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Why? Just go, just go this morning. So I went, finally, after a lot of argument, I went, and it was preaching, the vicar was preaching on this passage. And he preached this, be still, and he preached this, move on. So Monday morning, we rang the estate agent and said, we're not buying that house. We're pulling out. Well, Tuesday morning, another estate agent rings. You've got a house for sale in Swanmore? Do you want to come and see it? Tuesday morning, we drive down to Hampshire. We see the house. Alice takes me to the airport. I go to Brussels. And by the time I come back at the end of the week, we've bought the house. So guys, that's the way to do it. If you want to buy a house, just go away. I find that it works a treat. It's far less stressful. I don't know. People say it's stressful, but it's not. right. not. But that was the story. That was it. But the real punchline of the story is the house was called Ruatha, which the guy before had named it after some Anne Caffrey book, I think. I I don't really know about it. But we tried to decide to change his name and looked it up and see what we could look at. The best translation of Ruatha in Irish is Red Crossing. The Lord had made a way. And once we gave up on our own battling, fighting to negotiation and went, no, called a house, the Lord said, here you go. And we moved. We, we went away to New Army, We came back. We moved into the house. It took three, three days, and we were at the zoo the next day. Because the Lord just said, this is the way forward. And so that's the experience. But that's easy, in a way. Moving house is not easy, but leaving a job is not easy. But actually, it's easy to see. It's easy for us to go, all right, that was my move on. You said this. We're going to go here, and we're going to do that. But what does move on look like? When it doesn't involve that, it's not geographical. And, of course, in the desert, in the wilderness, the people do lapse. They don't go very far. I can't remember. It would have taken them about two days to get where they needed to go if they hadn't spent 40 years getting there. You know, It really wasn't very far. And, of course, it's difficult. And, again, we're in that situation now. We know where we are living. We're going to be for a long time. And it's weird how God speaks to you. He's actually putting a shed up in the garden just after we moved with a friend from my old church and I suddenly said to him Jeff we need to do this properly and he looked at me and went why? Because it's going to be here a long time and actually just knew at that moment that this was a long term place to be so actually now our challenge we've been five years what does move on look like in our life? What does move on look like in your life? It doesn't necessarily mean up in steps and up in communities and moving across the world it might do but it might not and our challenge He's finding out what that move on looks like. Or are we just happy to stay where we are? Are we just sort of edging back and sitting down? Are we just settling? Because I believe this story is a God who just calls us to move on because this is where he's calling us to. Read the end of Exodus. It's just an awesome moment. It's perhaps the most awesome moment in in the whole of the Old Testament in many respects. You know, and actually, is he calling us all wise? It really struck me in this passage that Joseph crosses the Red Sea. Now, Joseph has been dead for 400 years. But he knows that he is going to that place. He knows he's going here. So he says to people when he dies, make sure you take me with you when the Lord takes you. 400 years of slavery. And of course, he was right. He knew the Lord would take them, and he did. Actually, last weekend I went on a course, a two day I went on a ministry course, and it was really, really good. And I thought I felt quite good. I spent two days on this course. And then at breakfast, somebody said, Oh, Andrew. I went, oh, Who is that? I wasn't expecting to meet anybody I knew. And it was people who I like would describe as our spiritual parents from Buckinghamshire who really actually got us to go to New Wine in the first place, uh, where the Lord whipped me out. And, and, and then actually, they took us, got us on an alpha course, and all sorts of things. They're amazing people. And. They were there, and I thought, what are you doing here? Oh, yeah, what are you doing, John? He, he was a government lawyer, at home office, big job. he just taken early retirement. And they were five weeks in to a 40-week residential course in ministry, age 63. I went, whoa, you know what move on is, buying. Actually, you know, there's always place. God's always calling. God's always got more and of course we might do, we might get down here and sort of do little loops going, well when I've got such and such sorted, then I'll go. But I need to get this sorted now. Well, but actually the Lord says in this passage, just go as you are. They go, they take their livestock. They, as I said, seven tons of precious metals go into the making of the tabernacle. They didn't find it in the desert. There's no story of them digging for gold. They must have carried that. Their children, their bread, everything they take. And of course, we know they've got lots of baggage with them because we know the story goes on and we know this low point. They have not got it sorted when move on happens in their life and in their journey. And it will be difficult. It will be tough. But the question is, will we do it? And I just want to go into Hebrews um, if you want to follow it in Hebrews, it's going to be on page 1210. Um, I'm going to go on Hebrews eleven twenty four on the left-hand side, first of all. So by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was gone because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, when Moses had grown up, refused to be known as the son of pharaoh's daughter he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of god rather to enjoy than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he regarded disgrace for the sake of christ as of greater value than all the treasures of egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of bread so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. And then returning back to, on the previous page, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left they would have had the opportunity to return to it. Instead, they were longing for a better place. They were longing for a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And he has prepared a city for us. The real challenge is, will we move on to it So I think there's two, there's three questions. There's three questions. The first is where is your be still? Where's the place where you can be brutally honest with God? Where's the place where you actually have to take your shoes off? Your burning bush. Where you can meet with God. And, And Moses is amazing. Again, I talk about his faith. I was talking to someone the other day. Actually, later on in this story, it's about the, the chapter 33. Moses actually asked to see God's glory. And we think, wow, Moses, haven't you seen enough? No, Moses has not seen enough. Moses wants more God. So where for us is our place? Where is that time? Where, it doesn't have to be a physical place. It can just be a way you know that you can pl- find yourself in the presence of the one who created you, who created you for something that is out there. So that's that the first question, where's that honest place? And you might need people around you that you can be brutally honest with as well. Tell them what it's like. Tell them what's hard. Tell them where you are. The second is what does move on look like? What does move on look like for me, for you, in each of our lives? What is it that God is calling us through? What is it we need to leave in the water? What do we need destroyed behind us? What do we need to get out of the circuit and move on? God calls us to move on. What is that? And then the final question. Yeah, the final question is for us as a church, us as a community here in Portswood as a body of Christ, in this building, as we gather here, what is God calling us to? What does move on look like? And I just I just sense, I believe that God is calling us to something greater. I'm just convinced that there's something that we are being called for. It's a beautiful place and it's going to be really, really tough on the way. But we will be wholly and solely reliant on God to get there so with that thought in mind and those three questions but that last one from my heart is the question is will you come